uh, look at verse 7. We're going to try our best. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. If you're a guest here, thank you for being here. No matter what brought you here, a baptism, or you were invited, or you just want to come to church today and this is the one you picked, I'm thankful you chose fellowship. Thankful you're here today. I want the message to be a blessing to you. 2 Corinthians 12, and look at verse 7. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. He says, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, or three times, that it might depart from me. And he, that's God, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I would title the message this morning, Weakness, God's Entry Point. Weakness, God's Entry Point. For my sake, would you let me pray for a moment? Father, help me a little bit to preach. Give me clarity of thought. I'm trying to mind you today. I want the message to be a help to people. So I'm not trying to make it a bigger deal than it is. I just, I want you to help somebody today. I pray that you would, that your spirit would speak to us and change us and encourage us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I read a story about an artist. This is quite some time ago. Uh, by the name of Phil Hansen. I, I, I got turned on to him because I was watching some TED Talks on YouTube. You might have, have seen some of these TED Talks. Well, he was participating in one of those. And uh, he, he is known for, for, for being a great artist. But, but while in art school he developed a tremor in his hand. And, and so for, for years, um, he had worked up to this point at becoming an expert in, in, in this technique called pointillism, which is a technique, if I understand it right, where the artist uses small distinct dots to form a larger image. They say that years of tediously making these perfect tiny little dots caused permanent nerve damage in Phil's hand, making it impossible for him to hold his brush steady. So what happened is that over time, his signature ability, making beautiful images out of small perfect dots, became his signature disability. His strength became his weakness, and he actually had to quit art for a while. But thankfully, his neurologist said something that stuck with him and actually changed his career. He said this, why don't you just embrace the shape? So Phil thought about that, and finally he started exper experimenting with art again, and, and the most incredible thing happened. The shape that, fe that he thought had destroyed his artistic ability became what actually inspired his most powerful work. So now his weakness became his strength. And he realized that what he thought were his limitations became a catalyst for greater creativity. And he became so convinced of this dynamic that he wondered to himself, what kind of art could I create if I added to my own limitation of, of a tremor in my hand and a shake in my hand even more limitations? And so he did. He, he, he decided to 
had the limitation of resources or a lack thereof. And he said, I'm going to create a piece of art out of one dollar's worth of supplies. And he did. You can look it up online. It's phenomenal what he did with one dollar. He thought to himself, what if I could paint without using a brush or a tool of any kind? So he used his elbows and his knees and his toes and his fingers. And it's amazing what he did with those limitations. He thought to himself, what if I create a piece of art and I didn't get to see the content, I didn't get to pick the content, but my online viewers via live stream could tell me what to paint. And they did. And without seeing anything, just hearing their voice, it's amazing the art that he came up with. And he closes his TED Talk with this quote. We need to first be limited in order to become limitless. Now that's an inspiring story, but as I watch that video and as I tell this story again, I think to myself, I don't like to embrace my shake. I, I don't. I don't like to embrace my weakness. I, I mean, we've grown up learning that we need to highlight our strengths and hide our weaknesses. We don't embrace our limitations, we're embarrassed by them. So often that we even refuse to admit we have them. I mean, wouldn't you agree we live in a culture that celebrates strength but condemns weakness? Now, that's not just a problem today in 2020. It was true in the first century world as well. Because when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, what I just read, he knew the idea of embracing weakness would be difficult for them to swallow. And here's why. Because they were a, a city known for their strength. They emphasized things we'd be familiar with in our culture today. They emphasized self Reliance. They emphasize self-indulgence. They emphasize self-help. They emphasize self-everything. Even the Corinthian style of architecture was characterized by these massive columns with this amazing detail that, that they erected primarily to display that they were a city of power and strength. Well, over the course of the Apostle Paul's life, in and out of prison getting beaten for preaching the gospel, shipwrecked. He had learned that weakness isn't a bad thing because it's an entry point for God's strength. And having personally learned this lesson, he wanted to teach this church at Corinth that prized themselves on their strength. He wanted to teach them this lesson. But he knows in order for, him, for, for himself to get a fair hearing, he's going to have to talk to them on even terms from a place of strength. He's not going to be able to address this strong people from a weak perspective. And so he digs back into his resume, the resume of his life that he used to clutch so proudly. And that's where he starts this conversation. Not where we begin to read in chapter 12, but upwards in the latter part of chapter 11. Now, I won't have the verses on the screen. So pull out your phone, your Bible app, your, your iPad app. Stay off Facebook now. Grab your copy of the Word of God if you got it and study with me. Verse number 21 of chapter 11. Look at how Paul is meeting them from a place of strength. I speak, verse 21 of chapter 11, as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, but I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths off. Now look up here for a second. C can you see that Paul can't even keep a straight face? 
while saying these things about himself. Twice he said, okay, I feel like a fool talking about this. But, but, but it doesn't end there. He begins to drop spiritual credentials on them. And look at chapter 12, verse 1. This is like a spiritual bomb. Chapter, one and verse, or chapter 12 and verse 1. It is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I can't tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man. Whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise, that's heaven, and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. As such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. All right, I want you to imagine. See, sometimes we, we read these letters, and we are thousands of years removed from when they were originally written and heard and read out loud. Imagine that the, this letter to the Corinthian church is being read to this congregation. And they just heard somebody say that the Apostle Paul went to heaven. Made a supernatural journey to heaven. I'm thinking that, that some elderly fellow probably tapped on his hearing aid and said, Martha, did he just say that? I mean, is that true? Did I understand that correctly? And here's the profound thing about it. It was 14 years ago. Paul waited 14 years to tell anybody about this. I wouldn't have waited 14 seconds. And I would have been posting selfies on Instagram. Hashtag streets of gold. Hashtag no filter needed. I mean, the hashtags would be limitless about that. That would be my, my nature. But you know how Paul often started his bio for the 14 years leading up to this? The Apostle Paul, comma, a slave of Christ. Not, not, not the Apostle Paul, one that has visited heaven and you haven't. A slave was, was nothing to brag about. No impressive credential at all. Nothing but a place of complete weakness and utter submission to a higher authority. And here's what Paul's doing, follow me. He's saying, listen, church, I've got the background. I've got the resume. I've got the Hebrew heritage. I've paid my dues. I've been shipwrecked and beaten, stoned and in prison. I've been cold and hungry and all but martyred. Hey, I've even taken a supernatural journey to heaven. And if I wanted to make a spectacle about it, and if I wanted to get cocky about it, I could and I probably would. But let me tell you why I don't. And he says in verse 7, here's why. Lest I should be exalted or puffed up above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Look up here. How do you stay grounded after being caught up to the third heaven? You know how? You struggle. You deal with something you can't shake. One writer put it this way, Paul couldn't have his head in the clouds when he lived with a backdrop of significant pain, and so God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And so the, the age-old question that has caused senseless debates is this, what was his thorn? Literally, commentators, scholars, and pastors have argued about this issue for years. I say senseless because it makes no sense to argue about something that God intentionally left out of his word. It could have been his eyesight, could have been his back, could have been arthritis. 
could have been the fact that he was just single and had no mate. There's all kind of speculation. But I think God leaves it vague so that we could put ourselves in his shoes. So that we could, we could put our thorn in this passage of scripture. So we could put the very thing that makes us feel weak in the moment there. Here's what we do know about the thorn. It wasn't a splinter. The original word choice suggests that it was a spear or a stake. One that you would thrust into somebody's side upon crucifixion to make sure they were dead. Paul's saying, God, what you've done to me, what you've allowed Satan to continue to do, do to me, literally feels like I wake up to a spear in my side. It hurts that deeply. Here's what we also know. Paul didn't just ask. He begged God to take it away. Not once or twice, but three times. And I can imagine in one of his, his three prayers for thorn removal, Paul is, is probably thinking in his mind or even praying out loud, God, I'm a hard-driving overachiever. You created me that way. I could plant so many more churches if I didn't hurt like this. I could write so many more letters if I didn't hurt like this. I could disciple so many more new believers and young future preachers like Timothy and Titus. I could, I could mentor them. I could get so much done for the kingdom. If you would take away this thorn, please remove it. And with every prayer for thorn removal, God said no. And perhaps on that last time he said no, he spoke a piece of wisdom into Paul that changed his perspective. It's as though Paul prayed God said no three times and he put the pen down and gave the Holy Spirit time to teach him. And what the Holy Spirit taught him changed him because in the very next verse, it's not a prayer for thorn removal. It's a prayer of thanksgiving for the thorn. And the only way you go from asking God to take it away to thanking God that it's there is if you've been given supernatural wisdom. What is that wisdom? Look at the next verse. Verse number nine, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's the wisdom. Watch how this changes his attitude. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Here's the wisdom again, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Okay, here's his perspective changes again. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecution in distresses for Christ's sake. Here's the wisdom. For when I am weak, then am I strong. He's asking God to remove it. Now he's celebrating. He, he says, I find pleasure in it. What happened? It's not that he became a psychomaniac that enjoyed pain. It's not that, that, that he, he even had a bipolar disease to where one moment he was like this and the very next moment he was like totally opposite. It, it, it was this, God taught him that the pleasure is not in the pain. You're going to hear more about this tonight from Brother Tanner. The pleasure is in what the pain would produce. That's, the, that, that's where the glory comes in. That's where the celebration comes in. Specifically, God is saying that through this pain, you're made weak. And it opens up a space in your life for my strength to enter in. If you weren't made weak by way of this thorn, Paul, you would have no space for my strength to enter. You would be strong in and of yourself. You would be sufficient in and of yourself. 
You would be planting churches in your strength. You would be preaching messages in your eloquence. You would be writing letters with your ability to persuade. But I've made you weak so that every day you would fall on your knees to be made strong. And I would phrase it like this. The weaker we are, the more of God's strength we can receive. Isn't that what he said? For my strength is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now watch here. I have, I have preached and taught and studied this wrong for many years. I have said that God would work despite our weakness. I've preached that God is big enough to work around our weakness. That is not right. The proper statement is to say this, God can work through our weakness. Not around it, over it, or under it. Not despite of it. He's not in heaven saying, oh man, I messed up on that guy. I'll make up for his weakness. No, he'll work through it. Let me illustrate to you one in Scripture and one out of Scripture. The one in Scripture is based on the disciples that Jesus chose. Did he go along the Sea of Galilee and pick the, the guys with the strongest resume, the most charisma, and the best preachers he could find on the shore? He found a few, few fishermen, a couple of other people, and he said, follow me, and all the rest is history. And God didn't work in, their, in spite of their glaring weaknesses. He worked through them. Now watch here. Because you, you get to Acts chapter 1, and Jesus has already risen from the dead, and he goes back up into heaven, leaving the keys of the kingdom to these men. And says, you are responsible to carry the work of the church forward. And so Peter preaches this message. 3,000 people get saved. A couple days later, him and John go to pray at the temple. And they heal this man that has never walked. And it causes a scene. And they preach to all those people that gathered around. And 5,000 more people got saved. And it created a stir among the Jewish leaders of, of the city called the Sanhedrin. And they brought these guys in for like a town hall meeting, kind of a trial before the city. And the Sanhedrin would have, been, would have been like the most intimidating jury possible. They were dressed in white robes and they formed a circle around the, the victims, so to speak, and, and the ones they were trying to sentence and try. And, and that was Peter and John. And they said, by what name do you do this? And who do you think you are preaching uh, this gospel? And the Bible says that Peter was so profound and so bold in how he answered that, that these really smart spiritual people were forced to respond this way. Listen, now when they had saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. Why did they marvel? Because of how they talked and they were just fishermen. They were unlearned and they, they chose to use the word ignorant. It's where we get our word ignoramus or idiot. They said, you guys are just idiots. But you sound like scholars. And they said, the only conclusion we can come to is that you have been with Jesus. God was glorified. Jesus was lifted up, not despite their education or the lack of it, but because of it. It was their weakness that was the platform through which God displayed his strength. I think you got it, but because this next illustration is so good, I'm not going to skip over it. It's going to drive it deeper. You've heard of Corey Ten Boom? Best known as the author of The Hiding Place. It's an account of her time as a prisoner in a German concentration camp. She wrote another book, less well known, 
and it's called Tramp for the Lord. She told about a woman she met in Russia during the Cold War when Christians were being persecuted. And I want to read a little bit of that to you. Would you follow? The old woman, Corey wrote, this old woman was reclining on a sofa. Multiple sclerosis had done quite a job on this woman. Her body was twisted in every direction, and she depended on pillows to prop her up. She had no mobility, so her husband's time was consumed by her care. Now follow this. The index finger of her right hand was all she could control, nothing else. But old Corey said what she got from that finger, it moved across that typewriter keyboard all day and late into the night, typing out words, sentences, and paragraphs as she translated the Bible and other books into her Russian language. Her husband watched, Corey said, and noticed that it often took the wrinkled old finger quite a long time to hit a key, but on it moved, letter by letter, through books of the Bible. Corey said she wanted to go visit this lady, and she did. She said that she looked at the twisted skeletal frame on the sofa. She says, passion, compassion overcame me. And I prayed in the middle of that living room, oh Lord, why don't you heal this poor woman? The husband saw how deeply moved that Corey was, and he said, God has a purpose in her sickness. Don't miss this. Every other Christian in the city is watched closely by the secret police. But because she has been so sick for so long, no one ever looks in on her. They leave us alone, and she's the only person who can translate undetected by the police. It would be inaccurate to say that God worked despite her weakness. The truth is that he was glorified through her weakness in a powerful way. And if you were in that living room with Miss Tin Boom, you too would have compassion. And you too would pray out loud, God, take away this pain and take away this thorn from, from this lady. It's hurting her so much. But it was actually a holy place that allowed a very weak woman to become a pillar of strength in God's kingdom. Paul's trying to tell you if you got a thorn. It's not automatically a bad thing. Because something you might hate at first can actually turn into something that you thank God for because it creates space necessary in your life for God's strength. Next question. How does that happen? How does God's strength, Brother Joel, come into our weakness? Is, is it a mystical type of thing where we wake up and all of a sudden we're like Popeye that has eaten spinach and we feel great? What happens? Do we go to church, sing a song, and like, oh yeah, I felt it. God's strength came in. Well, Paul doesn't leave it vague. God tells him how he's going to make him strong. In the red letters in verse 9. If your Bible doesn't have red letters, I apologize. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. God's strength, church, comes by way of his all-sufficient grace. Are you listening to me? How do you describe that, though? Because that's just Christianese to me. But it's actually very true. Now watch here. Because you and I have all been through deep, painful times. And I, at one point or another, have asked people, how have you gotten through this? How are you navigating through this deep, deep place of weakness and hurt and 
and pain. And sometimes godly individuals, all they can tell me, there's no one, two, three step. It's just this. I don't know. It's just God's grace. And so for years I thought, what does that mean? God's helped me to understand that it's not complicated. Here's what God's all-sufficient grace means. You will have all you need when you need it. You will have the right amount of God's grace at just the right time. But does that involve any personal responsibility on our part? Or do we just literally, are we just an empty vessel that God pours his grace into? What do we have to do to get that? Well, let me illustrate, and I'll hasten to a close, but I'm going to have to borrow your imagination. I want you to imagine that in your hand, would you do this, please? In your hand, you hold a simple cup. That's it. This one's full, but I want you to imagine yours is empty. And the emptiness represents your weakness. But someone directs you to a nearby hose where the water's coming out. It's coming out of a wall that's high and long. You can't see the other side of the wall, but you can see that the faucet works. And so you go and you turn it on, and the water begins to seep from the hose. It's not pouring out, it's kind of trickling out. And so you, you put your cup under there. And the water begins to fill it. And just slowly from the bottom to the rim. And then right before it overflows, it stops. Now before we go on, you need to get the symbolism. The water is God's grace. It's his strength in time of weakness. And so life goes on. And you get enough to go on for another day, another week, another month, another year. But then life happens again. And tragedy strikes again or... Maybe a health scare, some financial issues. It's not a cup, it's a bucket. And you say, well, I'll go try the hose again. And you go back and the faucet still works. It's the same speed, it's not gushing out, it's just trickling out. And just like it did with the cup, it goes all the way to the top of the brim. And you think, how in the world did it know? It just stops, just at the right place. And you get enough to live on for the next year or two. And then time passes and... Something happens in your life again, but you don't take a cup or you don't even take a, a bucket. You've got to push a wheelbarrow. Oh, it's a lot of weakness, a lot of emptiness. You've lost your job and with it you're confident. Maybe your marriage is in a bad place, worse than you realize. Maybe it's a special needs child and you're overwhelmed. Or an aging parent that you're entrusted to care for and it's just stressing you out. But you take that wheelbarrow to the hose and you turn it on again and it starts coming out and it fills and it begins to kind of go like this on the sides. And you say, I don't know how it knows, but it got up to the top of the wheelbarrow and it stopped and you pushed that sucker away and it gave you what you needed. And then life happens again. This time you're pulling up with a semi-truck. And you're hauling a big old empty tank. And you think to yourself, this is too big for my God to fill. I've never felt this weak before. I've never felt this empty before. There's no way that there'd be enough water for this, but for hours it flows. And right when the tank won't take another drop, the hose runs dry. 
And that's how the grace of God works. There's always enough at just the right time. In fact, however much emptiness you bring to God is how much grace he has to fill it. Because the weaker we are, the more of God's strength we can receive. God gave me this message two years ago. This month. Two years ago. When after trying for seven years to try to have our second kid, Jenny got pregnant and then we found out it was a failed pregnancy. Two days after that, I was repping basketball in Tyron, Oklahoma, when the AD came on the court in a rapid pace and said, go call your dad. And so I went and called dad, and he said, you need to come home. Walked in, and he fell on me and told me that my 35-year-old brother had passed away. Father to three girls under the age of nine, the director of his local church, children's church program, on the school board. Owned a barber shop, loved people, loved his family, loved God. Had lived a wild life for years and came back to the Lord and was just doing so well. Was working underneath his truck when his truck slipped into gear and ran over him. Killed him instantly. And before that moment, I I don't know if I've felt. Uh, that level of, of weakness, when you compound that with the fact that we just lost a baby. Then I remembered, God's grace is sufficient. And so I start getting these text messages from all over the world, not the country, the world. People I knew and people I didn't know. Texting me, saying, we're praying for your family. We're praying for your family. I went for the meeting before we buried my brother and, and the, the preacher who was going to perform the funeral. Uh, God's hand was just all over him. And he was like a faucet to our family. Just pouring out grace in a way that, that he couldn't have mustered in and of himself. This was by God. The words he said, the way he said them, it was amazing. Other acts of God's grace along the way, like when we walked into the gym in Burden, Kansas, and there were over a thousand people there, and the town only has 500 people in it. The gym, high school gym, was packed to capacity. And the preacher, Brother Mike, gave the, the message of the gospel, and, and then a lady on her way out said, I want to get saved, and she got saved. God's grace. Her family ended up getting saved, they got baptized, and now she serves in the same children's church that my brother was a director of. And these things that keep coming, saying, God's grace, God's grace. It, we just kept going to the faucet, kept going to the hose. And then God taught me this. He, he, he taught me that Jesus is acquainted with weakness, too. You understand that his birth is one carefully constructed lesson on weakness. He didn't come in a private jet. He didn't enter the world in a, in, in a, in a cute little baby outfit and wave at all the cameras saying, hey, I'm the Savior. He came by way of a poor teenage girl from Nazareth who had nothing going for her. No one even knew who she was. 
He was born into an obscure place called Bethlehem. Could have been the capital city, Jerusalem, but it was Bethlehem. He was not born in a comfortable nursery. He was placed in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And we hear the kids singing all the time, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. And we have built up an immunity to the whole point of the song because we say, oh, that's so cute. Those kids are so cute. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. As though it's normal for a newborn baby to have cattle surrounding them. Why Bethlehem? Brother Scott, why a manger? Why did the angels announce Christ's birth to blue-collared shepherds? Why poverty? Is it because God all of a sudden like stopped being sovereign and forgot to reserve a room at the local hospital for his son? I submit to you that weakness was on purpose. Because weakness is the canvas. Weakness is the platform through which God demonstrates his gracious strength. And if we aren't made weak by circumstances in life and unexpected tragedies in life and sicknesses in life, and broken relationships in life, if we aren't made weak, we will always be strong. We will not need a God. We will go to church and put on our nice clothes, and then we'll leave and go eat lunch and not come back for a whole week, and we'll go and we'll drop a couple tokens in the offering, and we'll shake a few hands, and we might sing in the choir, but then we'll go out and just do our own thing during the week, and it'll all just be formalistic waste. This church needs to be full of weak people that embrace their weakness and invite God's strength. So here's the message. Get to the hose. Embrace your weakness. Quit dodging it like a game of dodgeball. God uses pain in your life for good purposes. Come back tonight, you'll hear that from James 1. Quit dodging it. But take another step and receive God's strength. That's active, not passive. Get to the hose. Get to the, when you hurt, get to the places where God's grace is easily accessed. The hose of your prayer clause and the hose of private worship and the hose of fellowship with God's people and the hose of ministry involvement and the hose of singing with God's people and hearing the preaching of the word. You might not feel like it, but it's those places where the hose of God's grace doesn't trickle, but it just flows freely. Get to those places. Embrace God's strength, receive, embrace your weakness, receive God's strength, and repeat. This, his mercies aren't new every week or month or year. They're new every morning. You, this has to be the rhythm of your life. God made me weak. I'll get to the hose to be made strong. And then I'm going to wake up with the same thorn again tomorrow. And I'm going to go to the hose again. I'm going to wake up with it. I'm going to go to the hose again. And God's going to continue to continue make me stronger. But if you don't get to the hose of his grace, you might remain in your weakness. And the greatest weakness any of you could have right now is not having Jesus in your life. Amen. That's right. You will forever be weak. You can go through the motions of coming to church. 
Go through the motions of getting baptized. Go through the motions of giving in the offering. Go through the motions of singing a song. Go through the motions of being a good, benevolent citizen in liberal Kansas or Seward County. But listen to me. If Jesus isn't residing in here, you will be weak, not just now, but for all eternity. So my friend, accept God's grace and forgiveness in your life right now in this invitation. You're going to see folks baptized in a few minutes, and they've done just that. They've accepted Christ into their life. And they're going to demonstrate on the outside what has been done already on the inside. I want to invite you to make that decision today. And, and, and if you're already saved and you're weak, maybe God gave me this message to remind you, get to the hose. And there's a lot of hoses, a lot of faucets up here. Oh, you can't see them, but they're up here. You kneel down at an altar of grace. And you say, God, make me strong. I'm broken. And I'm tired. And I'm hurting. And I'm angry. And I'm confused and I'm depressed. But I know you brought me to hear this message. So give me your strength. And you put God to the test. Say, God, you said you would make me strong. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed?